Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Kudzu Vine for June 16th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Happy Father's Day from Atlanta. Yes, and yeah, welcome and Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Trying my headset out. If you heard a little feedback, I've taken care of that. Um well, tonight we're excited. Uh, of course, we've got a lot of topics to talk about, and we also have a new guest to the program from the state of Arizona, um, Democratic leader and political consultant John Ryder. John will come on about 20 minutes into the show, and we'll discuss the state of Arizona, which is one of the um, most swing, persuadable states in the country, so it'll be interesting to uh, find out what's going on there with U.S. Senate races and uh, the presidential election and everything else. Uh, but until then, um, I, I don't know if it's a bombshell anymore because I, I think we've gone so numb to what's going on. But uh, Donald Trump did a long, extensive interview with George Stephanopoulos of ABC News, and in there, George Stephanopoulos asked if a foreign country came to you with information on your opponent, would you take it, would you listen? And he said, absolutely. You know, would not contact the FBI. Actually said the FBI director was wrong when he said you should turn that information over to the FBI. Um, Tim, how galling, how shocking is this? Well, he sat there in the Oval Office at the Resolute Desk, where we've seen, I don't know how many presidents sit at the very same day, and admitted that he would take, you know, info uh, from a foreign government on his political opponents. After all this screaming of no collusion for three years, uh, 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 again, this interview alone would sink any other president, just imagine Obama or somebody doing this. Of course, now they're trying to walk it back uh, after a firestorm erupted. Uh, the FEC chair even blasted Trump ab- about this. But, you, you know, Stephanopoulos even gave him ever ever chance in the world uh, to to walk it back by mentioning, you know, this thing, that thing, the other thing, and what does he say to George? Well, you're being a little wise gay, you know, a little wise guy, which, which is, you know, typical for you. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm just, I, I'm just about at the point where I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, it, it, it's almost like this, this, this craziness is his. So often that it's become normal now, and that's scary. Yeah, uh, Catherine, George Stephanopoulos actually mentioned a 
specific example, which is relatable. Um, in 2000, Al Gore's campaign was sent a briefing book on George W. Bush's debate prep, and Al Gore turned that over to the FBI. And, and he, you know, showed, you know, he told Donald Trump that story, and Donald Trump said, "Well, you know, that was a book. I guess Donald Trump would be like, I'd burn a book, um, you know, yeah, a book that that might hurt me to touch." Um, but but he was given that example, and it was I was almost shocked that Donald Trump didn't say like, "Well, that shows what a moron Al Gore is," because he actually had information and he turned it over. Um, what's your thoughts on this whole thing? Well, I'm with Tim. I'm I'm sort of uh, you know gobsmacked by the whole thing. But the thing that I found, I mean, I watched the interview. It's been sort of released over time this week. Um, I think the final bit was on Good Morning uh, on uh, this week this morning. And I think the thing I, I don't know why this surprised me so much, but when he said, "Well, nobody calls the FBI," like people don't do that. Well, clearly people do do that. I, I, I just thought he was sort of, I mean, he's the president. If anybody's going to call the FBI about something, the president would, I would think. So I just thought that was an interesting um, sort of response. Like, of course I'm not calling the FBI. Nobody does that. That would be stupid. Um, and then the other, I thought the comments from the FEC chair were great. What did she say? I never thought I would have to say this. <laughs> but it is illegal to accept information from a foreign about an election from a you know foreign you know person i I thought that was you know kind of sort of what I thought like do we really have to say this? Is this really in question um you know there's been a lot of you know everybody's been talking about it. the Republicans are you know clutching their pearls about it, but they won't do anything they won't you know, censure him or, you know, you know, they won't do anything. And I think it's, you know, tough for the, you know, I mean, what do you do? It's already against the law. <laughs> and he, de- yeah. he hasn't actually admitted to doing it. He's just saying that he would do it. I, you know, some people are saying, okay, this is like a open call, you know, okay, all you foreign governments, you can send me anything you got, help me get reelected. But yeah, what do you think, David? Well, it's the fact that we, he's already been accused of something like it, and he's you know, right. seemingly gotten away with it. It would be like if George Stephanopoulos had O.J. Simpson in an interview, and he said, Hey, O.J., if someone's uh, ex-wife started dating a younger man, what do you do? And then O.J. said, Oh, I would, you know, somebody could go out and stab him. I mean, we think you did it, and now you're saying it's okay to do it again. It's just egregious. Yeah. Um, and it, here's what it harkens back to me: the reason, like, you know, the Republicans aren't going to do anything. There's been a few that have, you know, come out and said, "Well, that was wrong." Although there was a guy from Utah that that gave him cover. Uh, the RNC gave him cover, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But a few months ago, there were two guys at a Trump rally wearing shirts. I'd rather be Russian. Than be a Democrat. And that image is what this gets back to. It's okay to cheat. It's okay to take illegal information to defeat a Democrat from a foreign country, probably not going to be Norway, uh, you know, whatever that was <laughs> yeah. about. 
But because the Democrats are more evil in Donald Trump and many Republicans' minds than most um, – or really any other country. I mean they think that Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, you know, you uh, Chuck Schumer, you go down the list, all of them are worse than Vladimir Putin and their mind. And that is pretty mind-blowing, if you will. I mean because – uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, if you know even just a little bit about his history, he is no friend of an open democratic society in any way, shape, or form. Um, Tim, talk about Republican cover. The RNC, the DNC, I saw Tom Perez on an interview um, on CNN, and you know they said, well, will the RNC sign a pledge to not – Accept any information, any help, anything from a foreign government, and the Republican Party, the RNC would not sign that pledge. Isn't that completely covering what Donald Trump did? Of, of course it is, but we already knew that the RNC was all in for Trump. The RNC has already announced that they will support nobody but Trump for the Republican nomination. Now, let us just go back three years ago, especially with what was going on, and imagine the Democratic National Committee, Congressman uh, Schultz standing up and, and, and saying, uh, you know, we're supporting no one but Hillary Clinton for the nomination. Could you? Oh, my goodness. Uh, and it's just not Republican covenant. Uh, uh, covering with the with the Republican National Committee. The Senate is his best cover in the world if it's if, if yeah. it's not the Department of Justice. Now he has got himself ringed with you know uh, different people in key places who are just not gonna let anything uh come at it. Mitch McConnell's going to make sure nothing comes at him. The Republican National Committee's going to make sure nothing comes at him. The U.S. Senate as a whole is going to make sure nothing comes at him. Every congressman uh, in the U.S. House, except for one, I suppose, is going to do the same thing. The court system, which is being packed with Trump loyalists, is going to do the same thing. So... You know, they, he, he, they have skillfully set this up so that no one can get at him now. Yeah, and then um, Andrew McCabe, Catherine, he actually, you know, ruled on this, if you will, and said that the president was not correct, that, um, you know, you can't take information from foreign powers and you would turn this over to the FBI. You know, once again, kind of ridiculous that he had to say that. But uh, what does this do to the relationship between um, the FBI and the Trump administration? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling. The um, the setup is mind-boggling because well, they know he's not going to call him, so. I guess they'll have to tap the phones or something. I don't know what I I I, I mean he told, he said that the FBI director was wrong when he was right. Yeah. So you know 
what is that? How does how does it set it up? I, I, I mean, I think it creates more division between the administration and the FBI. Yes, and he's already delegitimized with the way he treated James Comey, um, the role of the FBI with, you know, 40% of the electorate, whatever percent the Republican Party makes up. Maybe not all, but a good third of the American people, he's sown distrust in the FBI with what he's done before. This will only sow more distrust. Um Let's kind of talk about a bigger question. Let's say Donald Trump's out of office. He loses. Um, first, you've got you know, the Democrats take over, uh, making sure that we reestablish some authority and say, you know, the rules, when they weren't followed, didn't work for us, but they're still the rules, and we got to do that. But then even more so, let's say in another term or in two terms after that, the Republican Party takes back over power. Um, how do we get to the point in which they will follow the rule of law? I mean, this goes back to that larger Stephen Levitsky question about how democracies die. I think democracy is, in America has taken some major hits. How do we rebuild it, recultivate it um, after this, and this doesn't become the new normal, Tim? Boy, there's a question that I don't know if there's even an answer to anymore. It's a question we wouldn't have we, we wouldn't have even been asking. Um, I, I'm I'm more afraid of the questions we may have to ask if, say, the president were to be reelected, because it would then be open season on enemies. Time you guys know that uh, the. Anyone who participated, for instance, in the Mueller probe, they would turn this around and begin this gigantic public series of hearings and investigations against them and threaten to throw them in jail and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, we are so split, so divided, I don't see that changing for a long, long time. Now, I don't think there is a good answer to your question right now. It's what I'm trying to tell you, David. I don't see how we get there right now. Do you, Catherine? I think the only um, and the only thing that would that would that might uh, Remediate it all is if something horrible happened, and that's a terrible way to look at it. But if there was a war or um, you know some natural disaster that um, had an impact on a lot of people, then I think we might be able to unify. But I, I, I hate to I hate to think in those terms, but to me that seems the Unless we unless we get a really visionary leader, uh, who you know may be in this group of Democrats that we haven't identified them as this visionary leader yet, um, is able to pull this all back together with the help of you know other people. If we get some visionary leader who's able to, you know, if we can win back the Senate and keep the Congress and have then try to unify with 
with, um, you know, leaders from both sides, I think you'd have to do. But I, I'm not sure that we have that visionary leader. They may be out there, but we, we, I don't think we've seen that yet. But that's, those are the only two scenarios I can imagine. Well, and Catherine, you mentioned a, a horrible tragedy, some kind of natural disaster. Well, just a year or so into Donald Trump's presidency, um, hurricane hit, um, you know, Puerto Rico, which is, you know, kind of the de facto 51st state. People think of it like that. And he goes down there. I mean, it's just a tremendous disaster. I mean, based on how many people on that island suffered, probably was worse than Katrina or Harvey or some of these others. And he went down there and he pitched paper towels like they were basketballs. Uh, I mean, just a completely tone-deaf response. Um, And yet his base stayed with him. You know, it, it was something we talked about on the other side, but we would have found some other things to talk about. But people that um, are with him, they even even the people that would have probably gone down there and they would have rather put the arms around the people, actually helped the people in some kind of way, shown some real compassion, they excused his behavior there. So I don't even know that a natural disaster um, – you know, you know what kind of correct. disaster yeah. it stopped his funny business and economic disaster? It, what, what, this well. stuff wouldn't be funny anymore if everybody got hit in their wallets. You know, uh, we it was unpatriotic to question uh, President Bush 43, for instance. Uh, that That's the way they played things. It was just unpatriotic. Even people like Max Cleland were being unpatriotic in it, and all that was fine and good until the bottom fell out of the economy, and then then that wasn't funny anymore. And if that happens with this guy, it's not going to be funny anymore either. And you know as well as I do, David, uh, as far as the Puerto Rico thing, 40% of the voters right now are going to stay with Donald Trump on anything, not only stay with him, actually cheer him for doing things like that to a place like Puerto Rico. And we both know why that is, don't we? Yeah, one seemingly would uh, think it has to do with they're not real Americans, if you will. Right. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, you and the three of us might think of Puerto Rico as like the 51st state, but I think there's a lot of uh, people who don't, who think of it as, you know, as as a foreign country and why are we helping those people? Gee, it's only been uh, an American protectorate. These people have only been American citizens since 1898. Uh, You would think that those folks would, you know, you know, hello. It's modern times. You you can you can admit it now since they. Oh well. Uh, but but know we know why I, that is. We know why that is. We do know why that is. Well, uh, and that's a good segue point. Um, so now we're going to switch over to our guest, who's going to tell us about politics in the 48th state. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for the first time, Mr. John Ryder. Welcome, John. Well, thank you, David. Thank you for having me on your show. Your show. Yes. Well, John, just first off, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, just in general and politically. 
Uh, well, um, for four years, I was the executive director of the Maricopa County Democratic Party here in Arizona, which is uh, uh, Maricopa County is, is the home of Phoenix and uh, about four and a half million of Arizona's seven million people. So it's the fourth largest county in the United States. I was the ED of the county party, Democratic Party here. Um, uh, right now, I'm, I'm working on a, a number of campaigns. I'm the executive director of uh, Run to Win Campaigns. Uh, so we're working on already for the 2020 cycle, we're working on a number of campaigns to uh, continue the gains that we've made here in Arizona and Maricopa County over the past seven, eight years or so that I've been uh, involved with the party and with candidates. Yes. Well, and now the next question I have is uh, we know that there is, you know, one major city in Arizona than some smaller cities, but it's a very large geographic state. Um, basically, how does a Democrat win? How does a Republican win? Uh, what is the political lay of the land in Arizona? Well, the, the, like I said, Arizona is about uh, about a little over seven million people now, so it's not a, it's not a small state. Certainly, a lot of people on uh, the two coasts oftentimes think of Arizona as a fairly small state. It's not. It's geographically large and has a pretty large population, roughly the same size as Massachusetts, maybe a little bit bigger. Uh, in terms of population, uh, the Phoenix metro area is uh, almost five million people now. So it's again, it's not a small city. Um, in addition to the Phoenix metro area, we have the Tucson area, which is about a million people. Um, so the two major cities are the uh, are where the vast majority of Arizona citizens live. Um, and Arizona is a, on paper um, is a fairly competitive state. Uh, Republicans have about 34% of the state's registration, Democrats 32%, and independents about 32% also. So it's a it's a fairly competitive state. It's becoming more and more competitive each cycle, and uh, we've we've shown that certainly that it's it's no longer the 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 old uh, Republican state of the past. Phoenix is solidly Democratic. Maricopa County is now trending Democratic, which is the, the metropolitan area of Phoenix. Um, and the state is. So uh, we have nine members of Congress. Five of the nine are Democrats. Um, one of our two senators, Kirsten Sinema, just won election uh, in the last election, taking uh, taking over where, where uh, Jeff Flake resigned, or not resigned, but he, uh, he did not run again. Um, and so Arizona is has a reputation often for being a conservative state. It traditionally has been. Uh, but it's, it's definitely trending in a more progressive and, and moderate uh, moderate stance in the past several cycles. Yes. I'm going to ask you one more global question about Arizona, then I'm going to pass it on to my co-host with more candidate-focused questions or, or, or race questions. Um, and that would be about uh, Arizona being a kind of a hub for retirees. It's not Florida. From what I understand, a lot of people go to – uh, Arizona to retire because of the warmer climate all year round, and we know that older voters are more Republican, and that's really kind of I think one of the key reasons Florida has not just completely trended Democratic. Um, Arizona seems to be trending faster Democratic than Florida has since say '96 or 2000, which we always thought it was this, you know, purplest of purple states. Or is there a difference in? retirees the way they look at politics 
from other parts of the nation in Arizona? Well, I think um, you know traditionally Arizona has been one of the has been one of the top two states. Florida probably number one, obviously, and then Arizona has been number two for years, for decades, actually, since since the end of World War II in terms of um, Sun Belt migration, in terms of uh, retiree migration, especially from the Midwest. Um, and so that that did it that did keep Arizona sort of um, in the conservative column, more in the Republican column for a number of decades. Uh, but the growth, uh, significant growth for the past 10, 15, 20 years has been from California. Um, and while originally it was um, sort of equivalent to white flight with a lot of uh, sort of more conservative Californians in the past 10, 15 years, um, we've seen a lot of younger folks. Um, the job, job market here is very strong. And so we've seen a lot of uh, high-tech industry and, and, and younger folks moving, especially in the Phoenix area. Um, and so that has that has changed the mix of the people moving here, um, and the fact that uh, we have a, a large and growing Latino population. That's that's part of what has really trended Arizona to being much more moderate and uh, in play than it has been in the past. Yes. Well, I'm going to turn it over to my uh, co-host Tim Shiflet, and then he's going to pass it to Catherine, and then it might come back to me for anything they didn't cover campaign-wise. Tim. Uh, good evening, Mr. Ryder. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, Julian Castro did a town hall in Tempe on Thursday, I believe, of this week. Does holding an event there now at this time like this signal the fact that Arizona will be a 2020 battleground state in the presidential election? Well, I think um, I think yeah. Clearly, the party nationally and locally believes that we are going to be a battleground in 2020. Um, the party has said so. Uh, the fact that you know there's over 20, 20, 20 23 uh, Democrats now running for president. The fact that uh, a number of them have now made their way already to Arizona and held events. You mentioned Julian Castro. He was here the other night. Um, there's been there there have been a number of candidates who have already come through, and uh, and we know we're on the schedules for several others. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely shows that Arizona is in play. And uh, so for the primary, for the presidential primary, which for us will be in March, uh, we're a relatively early state. Um, yeah, it's it's we are we are something that people are taking seriously. Excellent. Now now you're a border state. Um, so, for listeners around the country that that have never been to Arizona and and don't know about your politics, how important will an issue like immigration and border security be in the election next year? Uh, well, immigration and uh, the, the border in general, including border security, is always a, a ma fairly major issue here. Um, Republicans uh, often use it as a um, – use the fear of the border to um, get a number of their, their folks sort of exorcised about all things to do with Mexico and the border. Um, but it's a, it's a pretty complex issue here. First of all, we have roughly 35% of the state's population is Latino. Mm -hmm. 
we have uh, Mexico is by far the number one trading partner with the state of Arizona, foreign trading partner with the state of Arizona. Um, and one of the major uh, traffic routes for, for regular imports, uh, it comes up through Arizona. So, uh, so much of the trade that enters the United States, legitimate trade that enters the United States from Mexico enters through Arizona ports of entry. So it's, it's a very, um, it's a very important uh, issue for Arizona, and um, it, it's not the uh, it's it's not the monodimensional build the wall kind of thing uh, here. Even among many conservatives, they recognize that the the issues to do with the border here, um, as with the entire southwest border, are much more complex than mm-hmm. um, than people in many other parts of the country think it is. Uh, now, now another thing that that we hear a lot about with reference to Arizona, and and it's unfortunate that that I even have to bring this up, but but everyone knows about the president's attacks, uh, both in the past and 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 up to the present day, on uh, John McCain. Um, and it would seem to the average person that that's watching this that these attacks would really hurt the president's chances of winning that state again next year since he only won it by like three points in 2016. Are his attacks on John McCain hurting Donald Trump with the average Arizona voter? I think that's um, I think that's a fair assessment. I think um, you know John McCain nationally has has been a fairly beloved figure, whether regardless of politics, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on. I think most Americans recognize that he was an American hero and um, and recognize and, and uh, are appreciative of, of his service that he performed for our provided to our country. Um, that's especially true here in Arizona, where, of course, John McCain for for decades has been involved in politics here. I think the, um, you know, there's a far right wing of the party that will follow Donald Trump no matter what he says or does. Um, but there's a there's a much larger part of the Republican Party, I think, especially here, that that is really disquieted and, and uncomfortable with. Um, that kind of rhetoric, especially about an American hero, about someone who served this nation for decades, um, and it, it 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 does not play well with um, the average moderate Republican. In fact, many of them, in fact, have uh, changed their party registrations, many to independent and even some to Democrats, over the past couple of years because they just um, are finding the rhetoric coming out of uh, Mr. Trump's mouth to be a little too a little too extreme to take. And I thank you for that, sir. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, thanks so much for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, about – oh, sure. Um, I I want to talk about something pretty current just for a minute. What is the reaction from your average Arizonan? Um, Is that right, Arizonan? Is that what we call you? Yes. That is okay. what we call ourselves, yes. <laughs> Everybody, you know, sometimes they, there's something else. Anyway, um, 
what is what has the reaction been to these tariffs or proposed tariffs on Mexico products coming into the United States? I know he's backed away on it, but you know we can never trust him to always back away. Just wondered what the reaction to that was. Well, that's that that sort of carries on with two things that we were just talking about. One is that the average average person in Arizona has a much more has an understanding that the issues to do with the border and with Mexico are much more complex than there's sort of the knee-jerk build-the-wall stuff that they hear, that nationally people often hear. Um, and, again, Mexico is by far Arizona's number one uh, foreign trade partner. Um, so the Arizona Chamber of Commerce, which is, you know, it's the that's the, generally speaking, that's the Republican uh, rank and file business folks. Yeah. Um, the Arizona Chamber of Commerce came out and said that this is going to be horrible for Arizona's economy if those if those tariffs go into effect. So the the average uh, moderate and and business type Republican understand that the, that the tariffs are just just a horrible uh, possibility for business here. Um, and so that's an example of. Donald Trump sort of overplay, I think, overplaying his hand, counting on Republicans to always support him. There's an awful lot of Republicans who feel that threatening a 25% tariff on Mexico would just be a, a horrible thing for, for business and for for uh, people who live in the, in the entire Southwest, not just Arizona, but Texas, New Mexico, California, Arizona. Uh, would, trade trade would suffer, Mexico would suffer. It would be just bad for everybody. That, 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 I'm glad to hear that every that they understand that because that was certainly something that we've talked about on the show here. Um, now I want to talk about your um, party. So it sounds like the um, Democratic Party is in pretty good shape. Is that true? You've got a, if you got a good, um, you know, base of supporters and um, organized and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're, I'm sure, I'm sure it is because you were the ED. For so long. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> um, well, I, I was the ED for four years. I, I, I'm no longer the ED of the county party here now. But, yeah, I think the, the party is, uh, you know, when I was there, like I said, we've been, we've been trending in the right direction from my point of view. We've been winning elections. Phoenix is, is now a solidly blue city. Uh, Maricopa County has, has no longer has single-party rule here. We, we now run. My, my job in 2016 was to uh, defeat Joe Arpaio as sheriff. That's probably the highest profile race that we ran in 2016 in Arizona. Most people around the country knew that our, Joe Arpaio was the sheriff here. Uh, we got rid of him in 2016, um, along with Yay, a whole bunch of other Democrats. That. And, uh, you know, in 2018, we did very well with Kirsten Sinema at the top of the ticket, Katie Hobbs, the Secretary of State. She's the uh, top elections official. Um, and so Arizona Democrats have been doing quite well for, for several cycles in a row now, generally speaking. Uh, we're on the cusp of taking over at least one of the houses of the state legislature um, in 2020. So I think, uh, yeah, I think there's there's quite a bit of enthusiasm uh, both nationally and here in, in the state about Arizona's prospects for, uh, for Democratic wins in 2020, carrying on from 2014, 16, 18, and now 2020. Well, that's great news. And is the Republican Party pretty organized as well, or... Or do they, you know, what's the, or well, can't that's, you tell? You know, <laughs> well, that's, that's another uh, thing that's probably going to help the Democratic side is that the uh, Republicans are, are, in, are, are less 
um, united than they've ever been here. Is I've lived here 30 years, and I've never seen so much dissension on the Republican side. Um, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, the, the business leaders of the state uh, are at odds with Trump's uh, some of his things, including the, the, the tariffs. Um, the state the state Republican Party elected a far right wing. Uh, chair uh, in the last election, and uh, she since evidently since she took over as chair, fundraising has dropped like a rock. In part because the the business leaders are not terribly happy with her and some of the rhetoric coming out of their state party. So I think um, right now we're doing. I think uh, we're showing that Arizona is definitely in play. The Republicans are are uh, sort of forgetting their more moderate roots and their they're going far to the right, and that is not where Arizona is headed. Well, that's good news. I mean, I, I hate to wish bad on anyone, but I will wish bad on Republicans from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm going to pass it back to David for for the final question. Thank you. Yes. Um, politics is a zero-sum game, and that's just the nature of it. Um John, y'all have a really exciting U.S. Senate race. Maybe not the most competitive, but obviously I think one of the most competitive. You have uh, Martha McSally who uh, lost her bid last time and then got appointed, and she's going to face one of, I guess there's three Democrats in the race now uh, for the nomination, one which is pretty famous based on his work in space and his famous spouse that had quite a political career. Um, kind of tell us about that U.S. Senate race. Well, I think on the, on the Democratic side, it is, uh, it, there's an awful lot of excitement around Mark Kelly. Um, he's the, the astronaut, as you know, that you were just referring to. Um, so he's, you know, Navy captain, astronaut, NASA astronaut, uh, married to Gap, Congresswoman Gary, Gabby Giffords. Um, so he's very well known. He's getting himself around the state. He's making a name for himself nationally, certainly. Uh, there's a lot of excitement around uh, Mark Kelly um, on the Democratic side. And then you've got Martha McSally on the Republican side, who technically is a Repub- is an incumbent, but um, she wasn't actually elected to that seat. Um, she actually lost to Kirsten Sinema in the head-to-head uh, race last year. Kirsten Sinema was elected, the Democrat was elected to the U.S. Senate, and Martha McSally lost in that race, um, basically because Republicans uh, wanted to get her into the Senate, sort of by, by any means necessary, the governor appointed her um, to John McCain's seat after uh, Senator McCain passed away. So, you know, she, she doesn't really have what you could consider the normal incumbent advantage because she isn't really, she isn't really an elected incumbent. So I think that's a very exciting seat, certainly for Arizonans, uh, for Democrats in Arizona, and for Democrats nationally. I think we're all looking at Mark Kelly as a as a pretty formidable campaigner, and uh, he's able to raise money. And of course, as you said, he's got a very very famous, well known spouse, Gabby Giffords. Yes, and then I wanted to ask another question, um, kind of related to that, because you mentioned in 2018, uh, Kristen Sinema won as a Democrat. But then on the gubernatorial side, Doug Ducey won re-election, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he had some unpopularity with school teachers, which is typically one of your largest employers in any state, um, but yet he was able to win. Um, kind of what happened there to create that 
top of the two-ticket race divide where Democrats won one side and Republicans won the other, which we really don't see that much ticket splitting anymore. Yeah, I mean that's 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 an interesting uh, that's interesting. What happened here is that not only did Kirsten Sinema win uh, on the Democratic side at the U.S. Senate level, but uh, Katie Hobbs won as a Democrat on as the Secretary of State's race. Secretary of State's race, Secretary of State here in Arizona is actually the Lieutenant Governor. We don't have a Lieutenant Governor, so the Secretary of State is the Lieutenant Governor, um, and she is the she is the chief elections official for the state of Arizona. Um, so you had Democrats win two of the very high-profile top-ticket races. Uh, we also won the uh, superintendent of public instruction, which is the, the teachers helped elect Kathy Hoffman as a Democrat to that race. So Democrats actually won two of the most high-profile and then the third uh, education one. Um, Doug Ducey did win re-election um, as governor, I think, the Democratic candidate for governor, uh, David uh, David Garcia, had some problems with his campaign. Um, he never really was able to uh, get off the ground with his campaign, and um, unfortunately, it seemed it, it just just had some issues with his campaign. Uh, but the the as you said, ticket splitting. You don't we don't see that quite as much these days with politics being tribal, but. Um, Arizonans definitely split their tickets uh, in that election, and Democrats actually did uh, very well, taking three of the top statewide offices plus uh, the number one spot of the Corporation Commission, which is, sets utility rates, which is a big deal here with our hot summers. Um, so Democrats did really well, and, and Arizonans did split the split their vote between the parties at the top of the top of the ticket. Yes. Well, John, I want to thank you for coming on. Before you go, um, let our listeners know how they can um, possibly uh, read anything you might tweet out, uh, post on social media, or if you have a, a company website. Yeah, uh, I have a company website, runtowincampaigns.org. That's runtowincampaigns.org. Um, if people want to around the country want to uh, help elect Democrats here, we also uh, have a PAC, RunToWinFund.org. Again, that's RunToWinFund, F-U-N-D dot org. Um, and we can take donations from from anyone anyone across the country. Um, so if you want to help Democrats win here, we're more than happy to help help make sure that that money gets to the right places. Yes. Well, John, thanks again for coming on the Kudzu Vine. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good night. Thank you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. John Ryder of Arizona, and we definitely will make uh, John Ryder a friend of the show because Arizona is such an um, interesting state. It's becoming one of the, pretty much by anybody's definition, the top five persuadable. I'm sure you could make an argument for top three, and, and John could even probably make a good argument for most persuadable state um, in the next cycle or two. So uh, definitely one of those places that we um, need to keep a um, good finger on the pulse of. Well, uh, guys, let's go back into something we hadn't had a chance to talk about on the show, but we love to text each other about, and that's the 2020 presidential race. Um, No, we're not going to do any form of buy, sell, hold tonight. 
uh, but I think it is a good time to just kind of touch on certain things. Now, there's no way we can go through 23 candidates and even begin to talk about all of them, so I think we just need to hit on pieces. Um, Tim, kind of where do you think the race stands right now? Like, where are the real movers and shakers of the field? Well, when in doubt, let's look at the polls. And the Quinnipiac poll, of course, is is one of the best ones out there. And the very latest one that was released um, three days ago has Biden at 30, Sanders at 19, Warren at 15, Buttigieg at um, 8, Harris 7, O'Rourke 3. And no one else is over 1% in that particular polls. Now, in... Other polls, we, we are seeing that the same six people who are above 1% are all listed, but uh, we are seeing some major movement, especially from um, Elizabeth Warren and from Mayor Buttigieg. Um, I... I, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable about Elizabeth Warren, isn't it? She, she seen, she's talking about issues in great, great detail. She seems to have a plan for every issue that comes up. And that just seems to be taking. And not only that, it seems to be taking at the expense of Bernie Sanders, who seems to be beginning to drop in the other direction. A new poll out of South Carolina actually had Bernie Sanders under 10% today. Um, so that, that's, that's where the race seems to be at the moment. Uh, Catherine has mentioned a couple of times that she thought these debates would shake things up a little bit. And you know what? I, I, I think she's right. I think that's the first chance that people are going to get to really see things, uh, you know, in nine and ten days as, as to what happens, and maybe people will start focusing more. Yeah, Catherine, uh, we talked uh, um, months ago after Elizabeth Warren – went on the internet, went on social media, opened a beer can. Her husband ran the other way. It was so awkward. And she tried to campaign that way. But then since then, she's just made plan after plan and talks policy. Is this just not object lesson A in the 2020 campaign of run as who you are? I absolutely think that's the case. Um, you know, I've been I've always liked Elizabeth Warren. I've I've said <clears throat> during this uh election run up that I thought, you know, I, I I liked her in the Senate and maybe she should stay in the Senate, but I've seen her a couple times in the last 10 days. She was on the View and I've seen her clips here and there. And I love this um I have a plan for that and then she can say in just a couple of sentences what her plan is, mm -hmm. which is really, really good. You know, a lot of times I think we, we uh, in the past we've suffered from, or, or not suffered, but, but grown weary of people who, of candidates who say, 
oh, I've got a plan for that, and then they go on for, you know, three paragraphs, and you start losing your, you know, you start nodding off and changing the channel. But I like the way she's very um, eloquent, but also very uh, swift in her description of these plans. So I think that's been really good, and I absolutely agree that that is who Elizabeth Warren is, and it's much better to see that than her trying to be something. I mean, I don't think she was faking it. I think she was just trying to um, come to people where they were and not and and sort of um, not be too much of a wonk. But I think that people are responding well to her wonkiness, and I think that's good. But I also think that the debates are going to be really important. I think um, whoever – I mean, they don't have much time. They're not going to – you know, they're going to have, like – I mean, if the time is divided evenly, uh, if you take into account commercials, they're going to have under 10 minutes each. I think they're two hours, right? I, I'm assuming not, they're not two sure. hours. Yeah. I'm not sure. But if they're two hours, they're going to have under 10 minutes um, each. And that's, you know, a number of questions. And so it's, it's going to be a, um, you know, it's going to be tough for those who aren't as, eloquent and quick as Elizabeth Warren is. I think the the the, um, the rosters of the two nights are very interesting and uh, it'll be interesting to see how Elizabeth Warren she's really going to have a good opportunity that first night because she doesn't have a lot of uh, high you know, yeah, I think Kamala Harris is on the first night but other than that she doesn't have a lot of the high rollers so it's going to be yeah, interesting yeah, I- Actually, they said they were going to randomize it, and maybe they drew out of a hat, and it just happened this way. But the and we'll assume that Bernie Sanders is still second. I think momentum-wise, he's definitely not second anymore. But the first candidate Biden, the second candidate uh, Sanders, the fourth candidate uh, Buttigieg, and the fifth candidate Harris are all on night two. Elizabeth Warren at candidate oh, three. You now we can make a, ca- a case for two there. O'Rourke and Booker and Klobuchar, who are all some of those candidates that are doing pretty well, they're on the first night with, with Elizabeth Warren. So, um, you know, she kind of may have a target on her back, although I think she's lucky in that uh, I think um, Booker has made a real point of not going negative. Um, O'Rourke never seemed negative, even really in front against Ted Cruz. The one time they debated, he finally kind of went negative, and it, it didn't seem to suit him. So she's not with some of the more um, uh, uh, vicious attackers, if you will. The, the one worry would be, oh, if people say I can only watch one night of the debate, maybe they watch the one night where there's four out of the five uh, top candidates. Um, Tim, what did you make of this uh, seemingly random draw. Yeah, uh, uh, I, I gotta totally agree that that Elizabeth Warren had a had a good draw. Um, with all the people on the stage, so I still don't know how much time each one's gonna, you know, yeah. get. Um, uh, the, and, uh, and for some, they're they're glad of that because it's less time to make a gap. But Elizabeth Warren got a very good draw 
and she can go ahead and get hers out of the way and 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 watch the others and she could come out of this thing looking really 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 good i've been very very surprised at how well she is doing when seemingly she was fading and suddenly her campaign has caught fire and people are going to have to watch her now uh this this, this woman could be she could be serious, uh, and so she's she's got a she's got a golden opportunity in nine days to really shine. Yes, most definitely. Um, I, I read a, I don't know if y'all read the article that came out today uh, on Politico about the winners and losers of the draw, and there was a few interesting points made about non top tier candidates. One was. Uh, Bill de Blasio is going to be on the stage, and he's over six foot six tall, so he's going to be very physically imposing. People are going to notice him, and they talked about how that being an advantage. Maybe it probably certainly shouldn't be an advantage, although after Guy Strange lost last year or two years ago to um, Roy Moore, you begin to wonder how much of an advantage that really is. Um but th- that was pointed out. This is a candidate that's had no traction whatsoever. Uh, Catherine, since, you know, like you said, candidates may get five to ten minutes to talk each, um, if they show those wide shots, how much of a, a factor will that be for Bill de Blasio? Um, <clears throat> you know, in this large uh, um larger group i'm not sure it's gonna be that um have that much impact um unless he's standing next to someone who's really really short like i don't know how tall everybody else is i think it's <clears throat> it's only going to be uh have an impact if it shows a real um uh you know difference between two candidates but I think with this many people, it's not going to be that important. You know what is? Oh, go ahead, Tim. You know, you know what is going to be important. You, you, three years ago, um, the Republicans they they didn't have this large a field, but they had a pretty large field to go through. And those who were languishing needed a way to break out. Chris Christie chose an interesting way at the expense of Marco Rubio. Uh, Hit him with a heavyweight singer. And uh, it didn't really help Christy as much as it hurt Rubio, if you guys recall. I don't remember this. Look for something like that. Um to happen, I think. Uh, They're going to have to try to figure out a way to get notice, aren't they? And how better to get notice than to do something like like that? One of those gotcha moments. What do you think? Well, you remember and, and, Rubio or Christie talking about the memorized 30-second speech, you know? Yeah. And, and of course, Rubio did come off very programmed, and other things got pointed out mm-hmm. that were just kind of ridiculous about him. 
um, but it, with those lights being so bright. But let me ask you about another point about this. Two um, more realistic political figures missed the cut. One uh, sitting congressman, Seth Moulton, another Montana governor, Steve Bullock. Uh, one got in very late, and that's probably the reason he missed the cut, but they, they knew the game when they got in. They had to have a plan to get the donors um, and whatnot to try to um, you know get on the debate stage. But so the writer in the political article made a point. They said, you know, if they figure out how to get booked on MSNBC one night, CNN the other night, I guess in theory you could try to get you know booked on uh, Fox, although I doubt that would help you nearly as much in a Democratic primary. If you could get booked on both nights, you might actually get more sustained television time than a lot of the candidates get uh, from the debate. Catherine, what do you think of that concept? Well, <clears throat> that's a concept, but it's not the same as being on the stage with the other candidates. Yeah. I mean, it it might be an it might give you some kind of, you know, it gives you some exposure, but it's not the same as yeah. you know being up against the others. Yeah, and I guess it doesn't have the same impact. You wouldn't want to say, oh, yeah, I like this plan better than Joe Biden's plan leading all the polls. I think there it's like I like this plan better than Michael Bennett with like 0.1% in the polls and six minutes of speaking time. And then I was on books both nights and I got, um, you know, total of 12 minutes, uh, 13 minutes speaking time sustained. I, I think that's more of what they're saying is. You know, from those those uh, folks at the back of the pack, you may get better time. I mean, yeah, you you obviously would rather be Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders and where they're sitting. Well, let's kind of one last thing. Um, two candidates that is seemingly kind of stalled, and they've stalled in a good position. But Pete Buttigieg, his his momentum was huge, and then Kamala Harris is seemingly no one dislikes her. Uh, she's right there in the top folks, but neither one uh, seems to have forward momentum at this moment, although they're in that top five candidates, no doubt. Um, did uh, Tim, do you think um, that either of them reached their ceiling, or, or what's going on no. with their um, push, oh, if you will? Okay, I'll take issue with one thing, and that's on account of the brand-new South Carolina poll which shows that Buttigieg has actually gone from not even registering almost overnight to 11%. He is actually starting to be noticed by African-American voters. We know that they are extremely important once we leave New Hampshire and come south. I do not think his momentum has stalled at all. I, I think he's still uh, moving moving forward a little bit. Harris has stalled a little bit, but I think she's on everybody's short list as the number two. Don't you? Um, I, I think Harris is in a good position depending on who's number one. We talked about this on text. If it's Elizabeth Warren, um, 
it's probably hard to see her as a VP candidate. And right now, she's not running for VP. She's running for president, and she's still in the conversation. I, I would not count her out, um, although that California poll that showed her not even in the top two, well, I've forgotten. How, what was she, fourth or fifth in California? I believe she was um, fourth. Fourth in California, her home state, the largest mm-hmm. state in the nation. Um, Catherine, what's your take on that, in particular, that poll of California and Kamala Harris's campaign? Well, I, I you know, it's it's so early in this game. I, I I just wonder if people are. Did Biden come in first in California? Yeah, I believe so. You think he? Yep. He comes okay. in first anywhere they cut him at this yep. moment, uh, for, you know. Um, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't. I don't put a lot of stock in that poll. Um, just uh, not not that I don't believe it. I just I think there's so much happening. Um, you know, people are getting. You know, they're they're. You know, they're making appearances. They're, uh, and she's still a senator, so she's got to do whatever that you know do her job and. So I'm not I'm not too concerned about that. I also think that um, you know she's I think she's still in the game. I think we're going to see you know after the of course after the debates and we're going I think we're going to see some tightening of those numbers. I think uh, Biden will probably drop a little bit. Not just not because of the um, because of his performance necessarily in the. Um, in the debates, but just because other people will, some more light will shine on them. So, um, so I just, I, I'm not worried about, I don't think she's going to be dropping out of the race anytime soon. I'm more um, interested in the, that those, those folks at 1% or below, I think they need to really think about the, you know, is there a Senate seat that would be a better thing for them to run for? And, and I, I can't name who I would mm-hmm. suggest that of, but well, I'm not Steve worried Bullock. about Kamala. <laughs> Steve Bullock, Catherine's talking about you because <laughs> that Montana Senate seat is seemingly yeah, David, a target. He's one, not even on the debate stage. Uh, David, Tim. one more quick point to make. I, I think in a couple of weeks we may be talking a lot differently about the state of this race after those debates. I mean, a lot differently. We may, and that'll be exciting. That'll be a good thing uh, for show. Um, and, and, and I like a lot of the candidates. I can live with a, a lot of the field. So, you know, um, I'm I'm happy with uh, pretty much everybody in the field's better than Donald Trump, for starters. <laughs> well, and, yeah. Um, and so it's it's kind of a, a no lose proposition. Even Mike Ravel. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I will follow basic laws. I mean, the bag boy at your local grocery store would report foreign influence to the um, FBI. I mean, so it's such right. a low oh, bar yeah. to say you'll do better than Donald Trump. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's so sad. Um, but hey. Not everybody gets to meet with the Prince of Wales, and I don't know if that's Aquaman or not. It could be Aquaman and not Charles. Um, Well, again, thanks to uh, John Ryder for coming on the show and telling us about Arizona. 
And until then, spin the kudzu, Vaughn. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and progress?